0: Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And I'm going to read Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust So as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word. Spoken by your Son through the Spirit as, as He carried holy men along, not only for the sake of the Hebrew church in the first century, but for our sake, for the sake of every church in every age, that we might be encouraged in Christ. We pray that we would understand what it is the Apostle is doing here for the sake of the church not only in warning them, but in comforting and assuring them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our elders and deacons, as many of you know, hold to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, In that confession, chapter 18 and paragraph 4, this also shows up in the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. It says this, we confess this, that true believers, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation. Now, this is the way they spoke four centuries ago, diverse ways shaken. In other words, you can have your assurance of salvation shaken in diverse ways, in a variety of ways, diminished and intermitted. What they're getting at is it's possible, it's possible to be a believer, a true believer, and have very little assurance of salvation. That's possible. Our assurance can be shaken. It can be shaken in a variety of ways, but some of the ways they list are things like committing some grievous sin. You commit a grievous sin, and your assurance of salvation is shaken. Or it can be shaken while you're enduring difficult suffering. You're suffering in various ways and wonder does God really love me? Do I trust Him even now? However, our assurance is perhaps most often weakened by um, this phrase that they use, negligence in preserving it. In other words, our assurance is most often weakened by our negligence to preserve our our assurance. What I mean is that we fail to pursue growth in godliness. We become slothful in our zeal for holiness and our love for God and for others grows cold. When this happens, our assurance of salvation can grow weak. Particularly when we are moving through a passage like this one that we've been working through the last several weeks in Hebrews chapter 6, particularly as we move through a passage like this with threatenings for false faith, you begin to think, well, if I'm being slothful in my pursuit of holiness... Think of how the last few weeks might shake my assurance. In Hebrews 5, through, five eleven through 6, 3, the apostle calls on the church to be mature. He says, you need to grow up. You need to cease being lazy. You need to strive to grow in godly maturity. And then in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, the apostle threatens the false professors in the church. He says, you don't want to grow in maturity. Perhaps you're a false professor. You're an apostate and you'll be damned. He makes it clear that there are people in the church who look like the real deal in many ways and may look like the real deal for some time. They profess faith, they're baptized, they're members of the body, they commune with the body, take the Lord's Supper, they serve, and they're even, according to Hebrews 6, 4 through 5, gifted by the Holy Spirit. Yet, they're false professors. They have false faith. They're apostates. They're damned. Now he differentiates these false professors from true believers by saying that true believers give evidence of faith by bearing good fruit, while false professors do not really bear good fruit. They may have big-time gifts, but they don't bear fruits of godliness. Now I pointed out last week that good works are necessary to our salvation. Did you hear that? I'm going to repeat it. If you want to hear a whole sermon on it, listen to last week's. Good works are necessary to salvation. If we're united to Christ by the Spirit and through faith, then we will bear good fruit. Good works are necessary as an evidence. That was my whole sermon last week. As an evidence or fruit of a true and lively faith in Christ. For the same Spirit who gives you life in Christ... Also, gives you every other gospel grace in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives you the gospel grace of a living and abiding faith in Christ, and that gospel grace issues in other gospel graces. Repentance from sin and obedience to the law. So, good works are necessary, but good works are not necessary, please hear this good works are not necessary as a condition that you must meet in order to earn or merit salvation in Christ. Rather, good works are necessary as an evidence that you have saving faith in Christ. Faith without works, as James says, is dead. It's false faith. It's temporary faith. Living faith, however, necessarily bears good fruit. It is faith that is followed by repentance. It is faith that is followed by good works. It is faith that has... Paul says in Galatians 5, works through love. Now, I mentioned at the end of my sermon that some of you might be asking the question after I preached that sermon on the necessity of good works. You might be asking this question. It's the very end of the sermon last week. Well, how do I know if I have enough good works to be assured of my salvation? It's probably the question I left some of you with. How do I know if I have enough good works to be assured of my salvation? You see, even if you comprehend the truth that good works are necessary as evidence or proof of saving faith, you still may wonder how many good works are enough to prove it. Do I have enough good works to prove it? I think we all understand why this question comes up. The threats in Hebrews 6 are given to cause us to tremble. They're given to spur us on to diligently pursue growth in the faith. But those threats can also leave us a bit shaken. They can leave us with a misunderstanding. They can cause the most diligent believers among us to lose assurance of salvation. Even while they're intended, those threats are intended to warn the most slothful among us. And the Apostle knows this. He knows this. He knows as he writes this, and really we think Hebrews is likely a sermon that's in written form, but as he preaches this, if you will, he knows that there may be a misunderstanding that the most diligent believers in the faith might be the ones who are feeling threatened as to their assurance of salvation, while the most slothful people in the faith are feeling just fine. So as a good pastor, he does not stop with his threats. He moves on to assurance. He wants to assure them. So my desire this morning is to bring the same kind of assurance to you. As we look at this text, I want to take it in three parts. First, I want to talk about the apostles' assurance of the church in verse 9. So his assurance of the church in verse 9. Second, I want to talk about the ground of the apostles' assurance of the church in verse 10. So he assures them in verse 9. Then he gives a ground for it in verse 10. And third, I want to talk about the apostles' encouragement for the church's growth and assurance in verses 11 and 12. So he assures them. He, grounds, he tells them what the ground of his assurance is. And then he says, I want you to be encouraged to grow in assurance. So that's what we're coming after. Now remember, as we do this, the apostle is a pastor of people. He doesn't just think he gets to throw out doctrinal statements that are somehow disconnected from actual people he's pastoring. He knows when he throws out a threat, that has a real effect on people hearing that. He knows when he throws out an encouragement, that has a real effect on the people hearing that. And as he gives this exhortation of the Hebrews, he has pastoral concerns in mind. And Christ, please hear this, Christ as the chief shepherd as the chief shepherd has given this word by his spirit because he also has pastoral concerns in mind. Christ has pastoral concerns for his church in every age. So keep that in mind as we look at this. You're really hearing the heart of a pastor here and wanting to assure a congregation he's just warned. So the the first point, the apostles' assurance of the church. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. In other words, though we speak in this way. What's he referring to when he says that phrase, though we speak in this way? He's referring to speaking to them by way of threats or warnings. He's just threatened them. He's just warned them. And now he says, though we speak in this way, though we speak with these threats and these warnings. Listen, though we speak in this way, now notice the contrast is coming, yet in your case, though we speak in this way of threatening the apostates in the church, yet in your case, he's distancing them from his own threats. He's just giving them warnings as a church. And now after giving them warnings about apostasy, he turns around and says, now let me distance you from those warnings. Though I spoke in a threatening manner about false professors in the church, I'm about to say something different to you. And who is the you? Notice that. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Who's the you? In your case, beloved. This speaks both to God's love for them. These are those who are loved by God. Evidenced in the giving supremely evidenced in the giving of his son for them. Though in your case, beloved, these are people also loved by the apostle. When he calls them beloved, don't just hear God's love for them, though you ought to hear that. God loves them. But you're also hearing his love for them. They're beloved not only to the Lord, they're beloved to this pastor. He loves them as well. God loves his church, and the apostle loves the church too. They are those loved by God and by the apostle. As a pastor, he wants them to know that he loves them. I've just given you a strong threat. Now, I want you to understand, I love you. I have the utmost affection for you. And I want to distance you from the warning passage. Because in some way, you're different than the people I was just speaking about. Now, what's different in their case? Look what he says next. In your case, beloved, we feel sure, or sure of better things. Now, I don't love the the translation, we feel sure. Um, I I think it weakens what he's saying when the ESV translates it, we feel sure of better things. Um, He's saying something more like, uh, in the greek we 're persuaded of we are confident of better things, like it really doesn 't matter if I feel sure about you. It matters if i 'm if I am sure about you, if I am confident about you you may there may be a particular day when i don 't feel particularly sure about you, right You guys have those relationships with others right The question is. Are you persuaded? Are you confident? And what he's getting at is, I have a, a knowledge of you. I have a certainty about you that's more objective than a mere feeling. He knows the church. He walks among the church. He's aware of them. He knows them in such a way that he can fruitfully and faithfully call them to task for sluggishness in their Bible study. For laziness in meditation and prayer for a kind of slothfulness about being resolved to be mature in Christ. He can call them to task for that. He knows them well enough to bring to bear the threats of apostasy to the community of the church in general. He also knows them well enough to say, but in your case, beloved, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you. Now this is not the same kind of absolute certainty we have of the truth of his word. Like I'm absolutely true, I'm absolutely sure that Hebrews is God's word and is true in all that it asserts. It's not that kind of absolute certainty. It's like saying, um, I'm certain about you, but obviously at the end of the day, I don't know your heart, only God does. But everything I see, everything I experience from you, gives me a, a relative kind of certainty about you. That's what he's getting at. It's a certainty that may admit error in that he can't possibly know the condition of their hearts, but he knows them as a pastor knows his flock. He is speaking to the church generally, knowing that his threatenings will cause the believers to look to Christ and pursue maturity. He also knows them and does not want those true Christians whom he loves. To be unnecessarily discouraged by his warnings. He doesn't want them to hear them, the warnings, as pertaining to them specifically, when he can see that they certainly don't pertain to them specifically. That's the responsibility of a pastor. I want you guys to hear that. That's the responsibility of a pastor to know well and love well the people he's teaching. It is not sufficient to love Christ whom I'm proclaiming. I must love his church to whom I am proclaiming him. And to do so, I must know the church I pastor. So that I have the wisdom to know when to warn you and when to comfort you. When to command you and when to bring you the promises of the gospel. That's why we're committed at Sovereign Grace to Covenant membership. That's why we're committed to Sunday morning and evening worship. That's why we're committed to Grace Group. That's why we're committed to regular pastoral visitation. The elders want to know you. They want to shepherd you well. This is our charge and our calling. Please hear this. It is not the pastor's charge to spend all week in his study and come out with some great product of doctrine and exposition that has no actual connection to sheep with whom he's walking during that same week. He's like one beating in the air, boxing in the air. His doctrine is generally applicable to no one and everyone at the same time. It's like he's preaching for a radio audience rather than actual people he's caring for. That's not the job of the pastor. We're supposed to know the church. It's part of why I'm a kind of a one- worship, service, non-mega-church guy, and I'm not decrying all mega-churches or churches that have multiple services. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying it's kind of why I'm that guy. Precisely because I want to know you so I can shepherd you wisely. In fact, when I get later in this book, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says that I'm supposed to give an account for your souls. How do I do that if I don't even know you? And I can say that the longer I pastor you, the more I come to know you, and when I say the more I come to know you, I mean the good, the bad, and the ugly. and We all have it, right? The more my own affection for you grows by the grace of God. The apostle speaks here as a pastor of actual people he knows and loves. It's as if he said to them, I have spoken severely, but I have not withheld the threats of the word of God to false professors and the hypocrites among us not withheld them. I know that your faith apprehends those threats with trembling. I know that your faith hears the commands with obedience. I know that your faith receives the promises with much encouragement. I know that about you. And so I feel sure about better things concerning you. I'm confident, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you. Like the apostle, I want you to receive the word of God as it is. And like the apostle, I do not want you to hear the threatenings as me saying that I suspect this is true about most of you. I really do not. I am confident of better things concerning you as well. I can tell you on behalf of the elders, we are confident of better things concerning you. Things that pertain to salvation. Look what he says. I am confident of better things concerning you, things that belong to salvation. Now his contrast of better, what's the better things being contrasted with? His contrast is what he's been saying in verses 4 and 5, if you look there. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. He's saying that I'm sure of better things concerning you. you. Look, you can have those five things. Enlightenment. Enlightenment. Right? Tasting the heavenly gift. Sharing in the Holy Spirit. Tasting the good wor- goodness of the Word of God. And the powers of the age to come. But those are not things belonging to salvation. There are good things, but let me tell you about even better things that I'm confident with regard to you. You have the better things, better in the sense of saving things. His point is that the external new covenant blessings you received in church membership and baptism and the gifts of the Spirit are all good things, but they're even better things, better in the sense of saving things. These saving things are the internal blessings of those who have saving faith. He's certain the church is largely filled with those who have saving faith. Now notice this. While he knows that many of them have saving faith, yet he also knows that some of them do not experience assurance of salvation. I know that most of you have saving faith. But I also know that some of you do not experience assurance of your salvation. Thus he goes about the pastoral work of assuring them. Please hear this. Uh, Because I think people get confused about this. Assurance of salvation is not necessary for saving faith. You can have saving faith and not have assurance. If it was necessary for saving faith, then you are justified by the assurance of your salvation alone. And not by faith in Christ alone. If uh, assurance is a gospel grace, it is a gospel grace. But at times, it's lacking in those who have the gospel, those who believe. If we have weak faith, listen, if we have weak faith, we tend to to lack assurance. If we have strong faith, we tend to grow in assurance. But the warning in Hebrews 6, please hear this, the warning in Hebrews 6 is not pitting weak faith against strong faith. The warning in Hebrews 6 is pitting false, dead unrepentant, fruitless faith against true, living, repentant, fruit bearing faith. That's what the warnings contrasting. L- listen to how we put it in in the Second London Confession, 14, chapter 14, paragraph three. This faith or saving faith, although it be in different stages and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. See, your faith may be weak, but just because your faith is weak does not mean that Christ is any less mighty to save. Christ's righteousness and power to save does not hinge upon the relative strength of your faith. Faith apprehends that Christ alone saves and faith looks to him. Faith does not look to itself. Am I strong or weak? Faith looks to the one who is mighty to save. But upon what ground does the apostle have confidence in this church? See, he has confidence in the Hebrew church that they have saving faith, but upon what ground does he base that confidence? And that leads to our second point, the ground of the apostle's assurance for the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. He feels sure of better things. Why? Verse 10, for God... Is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He gives a twofold ground for his confidence in them. Twofold ground for his confidence in them. The first ground is God's justice or righteousness, An- another way of saying God's faithfulness toward those whom he saved. And the second ground is is the church's fruitfulness. So I'm going to ground my confidence in you in God's righteousness, particularly with respect to his faithfulness toward those whom he saved, and I'm going to ground my confidence in you in your fruitfulness. So I want to start with the church's fruitfulness, that second ground, if you will, the church's fruitfulness. Look look at what he says again in verse 10 for God is not so unjust so as or is not unjust so as to overlook now notice your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do please note that the apostle is confident that they are believers because of the fruit that he sees is that not what Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit He's confident because of the fruit that he sees. What is the good fruit? He lists it there. Your work. That's the first thing he says. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Sometimes they love God and that's demonstrated in their love for the saints or the church. Now notice the last phrase. As you still do. See what he's saying is I see present and ongoing fruit. I see good works that accord with saving faith. I see your love for the Lord in your love for and service of the saints and i see that you're still doing this even now they're still doing these works notice that phrase as you still as you still do this isn't some past profession of faith that gives him confidence it's not some altar call or baptism or praying some prayer or some past service to the church that he's looking back upon. He's saying, I see your good works that you're doing right now. The root of which is faith alone in Christ alone. Your faith is persevering. It's, it's continuing. It wasn't a temporary profession of faith in the past. It is true, enduring, fruit-bearing faith, and continues even in the present moment. I see you loving Christ and His church even now. Listen, folks, I've prayed a prayer and walked an aisle when I was 11 years old. That is no definite basis for the assurance of salvation. I was baptized when I was 16 years old. That is no basis, definite basis for assurance of salvation. I really became serious about Christ, you know, maybe rededicated, I'm not sure, whatever we want to call it. On October 5th, 1991... That is no definite basis for the assurance of salvation. I became a church member at 22 years old. No definite basis for the assurance of salvation. I went to seminary. I graduated from seminary. And I spent the last 19 years as a faithful preacher of the word. No definite basis for the assurance of salvation. See, I can put on a show for a long time deceiving even myself. Here's the question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus today? Do you believe in him now? Are you repentant and bearing good fruit now? Is that still happening? I I describe myself above, but but here's the thing. Those, Those past behaviors are not a definite basis for my assurance. It is because I still believe, it is because I am still repenting, it is because I continue to bear fruit, it is because I continue to love the Lord and his church, that all of that past behavior now becomes solid evidence of my salvation. My point is that saving faith perseveres. It keeps going. It isn't past faith, it's present faith. Pinning down the date of your spiritual birthday, I don't even know what that means. I'm not sure if I have one. Apparently we all do. I hear it all the time. This is my spiritual birthday. Pinning that da- down that date is not even as close to as important as answering the question, do you believe today? And faith that perseveres bears good fruit. Thus ongoing good works do contribute to assurance of salvation. They do. They do. He speaks of their good works here in in two ways. He speaks of the general good work, and specifically he speaks of the love you've shown in his name for serving all the saints. So the general good work is the work that the Lord has begun in them and that the Lord will bring to completion. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's speaking of generally the entirety of the good work that's begun in them, from new birth to believing to repentance of sin to the doing good works or bearing good fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a way of speaking of the whole saving work the Lord has done and is doing in them. But if this is all the result of God's work in them, then why does he call it their work? John Gill actually comments helpfully. He says, this might be called their work, not because it's worked by them, or he uses the language wrought by them, but because it was wrought in them. And the grace that came along with it was exercised by them. Hear that? It's called your work, your good work, because not you worked it yourself, but God worked it in you. And then you have exercised the grace that he's worked in you. Now the apostle points out a specific example of the work of the Lord in them. He points out their love for the Lord. That's shown in their love for the saints now the saints is not a reference to the nfl team and the saints is not a reference to some folks throughout history that um that reached some kind of level of excessive righteousness that that we now call them saints and we we canonize them in some way the saints is a reference to the church to christians to believers And he's saying this this love comes from God as well. See, God's love in Christ is the fountain from which your love for God and His church springs. When man fell into sin at the fall, it was the promise in Genesis 3.15 that showed forth the love of God to wicked creatures. Owen argues that If it had not been for the promise announced in Genesis 3.15, the love of God in man would have been fully extinguished. We wouldn't have even known what love is, right? We would have forever been singing, I want to know what love is, right? And we wouldn't know. Sorry, I had to go there. (laughs) But we wouldn't know, right? But God promises us, shows us love in the gospel promise, and progressively unfolds that until it's fully manifested in the coming of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not just that God has love for sinners, it's that God is love. And His love toward us is incomprehensible. It's beyond the ability of our to wrap our minds around. And His love for us is ineffable. It's beyond our ability to even put proper words to. His love is shown in the giving of his beloved Son as a propitiation, a wrath satisfier for us. And God's love is poured into our hearts or shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.8, so that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ through faith, he's given us a new birth. And he's taken our wicked hearts, which are curved in upon themselves, and he has bent them out toward God and toward others. He is daily transforming us to be more like Christ. We're united to Christ, the true vine, and thus we bear the good fruit of love. Look at John chapter 15. Keep your hand in Hebrews 6 and look at John chapter 15. I addressed this passage last week about Christ being the true vine, the Father being the vine dresser, and us being the fruit bearing branches. I stopped at verse 7. I want to pick up at verse 8, though. If we're united to the true vine through faith, we're bearing good fruit. Now let's look at what that is. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now notice the definition. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We could spend a whole sermon just on that phrase. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. You ready? That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, this is how the apostle knows these are true believers because of their love for the brothers. Look back at John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now notice, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the question... Why is the apostle confident about their salvation, about the fact they have things that, better things that are pertaining to salvation? He's confident because of their love for one another. That's what he says. Jesus told me to look for that, and I see it in you. This is the central evidence God gives, precisely because it is by loving others that we are children who are imitators of our Father. Father. It is precisely in loving others that we are walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Look at 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life. Man, I want to know that. Have I passed out of death into life? I want to know that. You want to have assurance of salvation? Here's a text. How can you know? We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's the church. Whoever does not love abides in death. Friends, this is precisely why it is categorically impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I hate his church a categorical impossibility. If you hate the church, then the love of God is not in you. Period. Further, if you do not love the church, then the love of God is not in you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love Love for Christ's church is not just an internal affection, though it is an internal affection. It shows up in your service to Christ's church in your works. If you love Christ's church, then you want to be with them. You want to serve them. You want to lay down your life for them. So why is the apostle convinced of better things concerning them, things that belong to salvation, Because he sees their work and their love for God and his church in their service to the saints. He sees that in them. Now, now I want you to note this. In Hebrews chapter 6, look back there, verses 4 and 5. False believers are said to have the operations of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. All of these things, being enlightened means the lights have been turned on in some way that you see the truth. Tasting the heavenly gift, right? Seems to be a tasting of the Holy Spirit. Shared in the Holy Spirit or partakers of in the Holy Spirit. That's the central term of these five, or the middle term of these five descriptions, which are centering everything there. You, in some way, have partaken of the Holy Spirit. Tasted the goodness of the Word of God, like you like preaching and the powers of the age to come. In some way you've probably seen and or participated in miracles and/ or spiritual gifts. In other words, a person can partake in the operations of the Holy Spirit, what we might call the spiritual gifts. They can love preaching. they can be a part of the church. they can like the Word of God. And yet, the apostates, unbelievers, they're really gifted by the Holy Spirit and yet they are unbelievers or false professors. Listen, folks, it does not matter, and here's what I want to get. It does not matter how gifted you are, how much you say you serve the church if you do not love the saints. It doesn't matter. God can gift you and work through you as an unbeliever. Did you know that? I think we wonder about that. Can God gift Can the Holy Spirit gift unbelievers? Yes. Look, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. He's God. Keep that in mind first. Second, he gifted a donkey to speak. I'm pretty sure he can gift an unbeliever. And further, the exercise of your spiritual gifts in the church can be wholly self-serving. You can want to exercise spiritual gifts in the church because it serves you. It makes you look a particular way. We live in an era when the church judges a man in ministry by his gifts rather than by his godliness and his love for the church. The question is is that, oh, that guy's a good communicator. He's a gifted brother. No one's bothering to ask, is he godly? Does he love Christ's church? The question is not how gifted you are. The question is whether the love of God is in you. That's the question. How do I know that? Paul flat says it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's dealing with the spiritual gifts in the church and the way they're abusing and misunderstanding them. In 1 Corinthians 13, he's doing the same thing. And In 1 Corinthians 14, he continues that discussion. But let's just look at 1 Corinthians 13, and verse 1. Speaking of being really gifted, now this is is a subjunctive mood in the Greek, which means it's, it's a hypothetical, but he's giving you a hypothetical that's so exalted and gifting, he wants you to get the point. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, even if I could speak in the language of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and by the way, only God understands all mysteries, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, I can be the most gifted person. I could even be a martyr. And be a false professor. If I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, what is love? Love is patient, long suffering, and kind, seeks the good of the other at my own expense. Love does not envy. It doesn't look at the other and say, I wish I had what they have. I'm jealous of them. It doesn't boast. Love does not envy or boast. It doesn't say, let's make this scene all about me. Let's exalt me now. It is not arrogant. doesn't look down your nose at another weaker believer and say, man, I'm glad I'm not a mess like that person. Or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. By the way, irritable and resentful is the idea of it's list making. Like, love does not make lists of ways people have offended you. Love is not easily offended, in other words. If you're an easily offended person, that means you're not a particularly loving person. It means you're a particularly prideful person. It is not... Rejoice, verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, I don't see another fall and stumble and think, serves them right. I knew it was coming for them. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. That's the word for cover, by the way. It covers all things. Like in the Proverbs, love covers a matter, but hatred repeats it. Love covers a matter, but repeating a matter separates close friends. In other words, someone sins, you don't keep talking about it. You keep talking about it, you're not loving them. I'm talking about a repentant person. You cover it. You you know what this is like, particularly if you're a spouse or a parent and your spouse or your child commits some kind of grievous sin you pretty much don't talk about it to people because you don't want to shame or embarrass them, right? That's what love does. It bears all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Is that what you do for the other believers in the church when you see them in sin? See them weak in faith? You see them stumbling? Do you cover it? believe all things, and hope all things, and endure all things, love never ends. You see, God is love. He pursued relationships with wicked sinners who broke fellowship, broke trust, utterly rejected him, rebelled against his law. He pursued that relationship at the expense of his own son. From our fall into sin in the garden, it was not we who pursued God, but he who pursued us. He did this because he is love. Now your love for the saints demonstrates that the spirit of Christ is at work in you, making you like his son. Your love for those who grieve you, those who harm you, those who violate your trust demonstrates that you are becoming like your father and his son. Do you love those who love you and make life easy for you? So what? Even the pagans do that. That's just another kind of self-love. Do you love those? Honor those? Hope the best for those who hurt you, disappoint you, or make you feel unsafe? That's the question. By the way, Sovereign Grace, just as an aside, I pray that we will cease buying into this therapeutic category of the world looking for safe spaces due to psychological fears. It is nonsense pressed by the world on us. The Christian life is anything but safe laying down your life for those who might be will, for, for those who might be willing to take it from you is not safe. I do not mean that I should allow predators to roam the halls of the children's ministry or something. It's not what I'm talking about. I mean that we may not shun those who we feel unsafe around because they might disappoint us or lie to us or harm us once again. We may not You think Jesus felt safe with the apostles and the Jews in that time because he could entrust himself to them? He knew what was coming to him from them, and yet he loved them anyway. People often ask me how the elders endure the disappointments we experience with Many different folks who sin, who break our trust, who bring harm to the body. You know that happens. And some of you interact with one person or a few people that it happens to in, in your group in the church. And then they say to me, how do you do that with so many people? Because it's just not your group, but the whole of the church you have to do that with as, as elders. Listen, friends, I, I'm not saying those disappointments are easy. Working through rebuking sin and, and working toward reconciliation is messy and hard. It is heart-wrenching. To love people, to serve people, to pray for people, to pour your heart out for people, to entrust yourself to people, and to have those people sin in some grievous manner. It is heart-wrenching. But we are committed to it by God's grace because we love the saints, because we love the church. In one sense, the sin of my brothers and sisters in Christ is a burden to me. Please hear this. In one sense, it's a burden to me. In another sense, I consider it a tremendous privilege and honor to be able to walk with them through life, even when life takes really hurtful turns. Who am I that I should receive such tremendous blessings? These folks are elect of the Father, blood-bought, by the Son, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who am I that I get to treat them as anything less than that? And who am I that I get to associate with them at all? We have brothers and sisters in our body who are relatively weaker or stronger in the faith. You guys know that? But even those weak believers who disappoint me are a privilege to know and serve. I don't, I don't know if we see other believers this way. But even the weak believers who disappoint you, hurt you, break your trust, sin in some way and repent, even those weak believers, elect of the Father, blood bought by the Son, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, it's a privilege that you even get to associate with them. privilege I'm not saying that walking through life with comprehensive fallen comprehensively fallen Christians is simple or easy I'm saying it's a tremendous privilege tremendous privilege some of you come to me and say don't you you get tired of of me and my weakness and this and that and I'll have to go through this with me again because we have people in here who struggle with various things of weakness and faith and come again and again I'm working don't you tire of it no It's a a privilege for me. Listen, what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The Lord loves to love you and me. Listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He, catch this, he, God, the holy one, Whose law you violated, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We come in here to sing to the Lord because of his grace and love to us, and we're weak and feeble, often and late, raising our voices. To him, Which we ought not to be because the Bible commands us to sing. It ain't an option. You don't get to just stand there and look at the screen. You're commanded to, scre- to sing. You're commanded to. You understand that? The Bible says it. And we're still weak and feeble in our attempts. We never stop to consider the fact that the Lord is exulting in song over us. That's astounding. The Lord doesn't just love you and save you. The Lord sings over you with joy. Look what a mess you are and what a mess I am, and yet the Lord rejoices to sing over me and over you. How can I possibly then cast you aside and consider you too much of a burden for me if the Lord sings over you? What a man like me, a man running from Him, a man who has rebelled against His law, what do I deserve? Yet the Lord seeks me, he gratuitously forgives me, he saves me, and he rejoices over me with gladness. The Lord exults over me with loud singing. That ought to stun you. You know what you did yesterday. You know how you treated somebody in the car, maybe on the way here today. And yet, the Lord exults over you with loud singing. Do you hear that, Sovereign Grace? The Lord exalts over you with loud singing. Doesn't that make you want to sing? And the more I understand his love for me and for you, the more I love to love you as well. Sovereign Grace, I can say that I see this in you often. I see your love for the saints. I see your love for our elders and deacons. I see the way you care for our full-time pastors. I see the way you love and provide for our missionaries. I see your service to one another. And it is obvious to me that many, many of you have the better things that pertain to salvation. Many of you have saving faith. I'm confident of that. So one ground of the apostles' confidence is their, is their work in love. A second ground, and I'm going to wrap this up because Jason's going to spend a lot more time on this next week, but a second ground is God's righteous remembrance, his faithfulness. Look back at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. He remembers your work. He sees and he cares and he does not forget. He united, he united you to the vine who is Christ and he tended that vine and he sees the fruit that is brought forth and he does not forget or overlook that. He will remember and reward that. Now I addressed his rewarding, the work he actually does in us last week, but I want to return to it just for a second. When a biblical text argues that your good works give another person confidence about your salvation, some folks will begin to want to say that God is justifying you on the basis of, of good works. That is not the point. The point is that your good works are evidence of a true and lively faith, but they are not your justification before God. It is Christ alone who saves through faith. He is your justification. When folks take these texts and import a gospel of good works into the church, our first concern, even then, is not that they're undermining the nature of faith by turning faith into a work, although that, although that is a concern. Our primary concern is that when you carry your works into the equation, you diminish the sufficiency of Christ and His righteous work for you. See, our work and our love is derivative. It exists because we are united to the vine. Thus, our assurance is not ultimately in our works, Our assurance is not ultimately in our love. Our assurance is ultimately in His love and kindness. That's why we're said to, in verse 12, if you look down there, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We are those who inherit the saving promises. We inherit the saving promises. We do not merit the saving promises. Don't make that into a bumper sticker. Our love, I didn't mean to rhyme that way, our love and good works evidence that we have faith in Christ. Our love and good work demonstrate that we are His and He is ours, but our love and works are not the reason we have Christ. Nor do they earn our inheritance of salvation. It evidences that we belong to Christ and that we're heirs of Christ. Yes, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. But that's because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and do his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And third, given the Spirit, your Spirit wrought good works, evidence your faith, and so build assurance we come to our third and final point, which I'm going to conclude with fairly rapidly because this ties right into the next sermon. Verse 11, the pastor's encouragement for the church to grow in assurance and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. See, we want you, our desire is, that you continue to be earnest. You continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that god it's God who's at work and you both will willing to do his good pleasure. So that you have what? The full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, lazy, slothful, as he talks about in chapter 5 and verse 11 but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now, just so you know, the person he's going to key in on who through faith and patience inherits the promise is Abraham. And he's going to hold him up and say, imitate Abraham. But what he's saying is, I want you to continue pursuing Christ. Don't be lazy. Be diligent in the means of grace. Corporate worship, Bible reading, meditation, prayer. I want you to be diligent so that your faith might persevere, so that your faith will strengthen, so you experience the comfort of assurance. You've become dull and slothful and lazy in hearing, Hebrews 5:11. I want you to pursue maturity. Be warned that you should not take comfort that your backsliding is simply just backsliding. It might not be. Your current backsliding might be evidence that your faith was always temporary and false. Now, I know I'm speaking pretty strongly here, but, beloved, I'm sure of better things concerning you. I have strong encouragement that you're not, in the main, really those to whom my warning applies. I have assurance of your salvation. I see your current good works. I know that it's the fruit of true faith given by God's Spirit. And I desire you to have that same assurance. So don't be lazy. Grow up. Pursue Christ. As you do, your faith will strengthen, and you will have greater assurance. Listen, friends, you can have true saving faith and lack assurance of salvation. It's possible to be saved, and yet worry about whether you are. But you aren't saved by assurance. You're saved by Christ. We want your faith, as pastors, we want your faith to strengthen so that your assurance grows. Thus, we want you to strive to mature in faith so that your assurance grows on with it. Listen to how we say this in The Second Lenten Confession, chapter 18 and paragraph 3, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and struggle with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, being in the Word, being in prayer, gathering the corporate worship service, etc., attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his election and calling sure that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. See, it never inclines us to looseness or to lawlessness, and inclines us to the love of God and his church. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the love which you've shown us in your son. We're thankful that you've worked in us in so many ways that we do not deserve. That you continue To love us and thankful that you've given us by your Spirit faith that perseveres, that repents, that works in love. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and our assurance with it, that we would look evermore to your Son, that we would grow in assurance as we diligently pursue the means of grace you've given us, that you would be honored. Pray that you would grow in us more and more likeness to your son so that we love as he loves. We are awestruck by the thought that you would exultantly, joyfully sing over us. And yet you do. You do so because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. You do so because you are a God who is love. And that you showed that. You made that so clearly manifest in the giving of your Son for us. And for that we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.